0: Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the third and final part on the Napoleonic Wars. Last week I described the Peninsular War of 1807 to 1814 in which the French invaded and tried to take control of Spain, but met fierce resistance among the native Spanish population. British forces under the command of the Duke of Wellington led a counter-attack against the French based first in Portugal. This proved a serious drain on French manpower and resources while Napoleon was also fighting in other parts of the continent. The leaders of Britain hoped that French difficulties in Spain would encourage Tsar Alexander I of Russia to abandon the alliance concluded with Napoleon at Tilsit and hoped the rest of Northern Europe, Sweden, Denmark and Prussia would then feel confident enough to confront France. The next challenge to France, however, came instead from Austria. Vienna's armies were demoralised, her treasury empty and her influence in Germany destroyed. In 1808, Napoleon's difficulties in Spain strengthened a court faction who favoured opposing the French more strongly, led by the new foreign minister, Johann Philipp Stadion. Further support came from Austria's ambassador in Paris, Clemens Metternich, who was becoming increasingly hostile towards Napoleon as he realised the scope of the French Emperor's ambitions. In spite of warnings from Archduke Charles that his military reforms were still incomplete, the Austrians declared war on France on the 9th of April 1809. The international support which Vienna hoped for failed to materialise. There was a pro Austrian uprising in Tyrol, earlier annexed to Bavaria, but otherwise there was no German national uprising, and neither Russia, Prussia, nor the German princes helped. Only Britain gave any support, but this proved of little help after a British diversionary attack in the northern Netherlands, failed. By the middle of May, just a month after war was declared, Napoleon had occupied Vienna, and the Archduke Charles won a victory, albeit with heavy losses at the Battle of Aspen-Essling, He was unable to press his advantage. The conclusive battle of the campaign occurred on the 5th of July, just outside Vienna, at the town of Wagram. Having successfully crossed the Danube, Napoleon attempted an early breakthrough and launched a series of evening attacks, but the Austrians held firm. The next day at dawn, Archduke Charles launched attacks along the entire battle line, seeking to take the opposing army in a double envelopment. The offensive failed against the French right but nearly broke Napoleon's left. However, the Emperor countered by launching a cavalry charge, which temporarily halted the Austrian advance. The tide of battle turned when Napoleon launched his own offensive along the entire line. Charles admitted defeat and led an ordered retreat. After the battle, Charles remained in command of a cohesive force and decided to retreat to Bohemia. However, the French Grand Armée eventually caught up with him, and scored a victory at the Battle of Znaim. With the battle still raging, Charles decided to ask for an armistice, effectively ending the war. Casualties were very heavy, perhaps up to 40,000 on each side. The subsequent peace settlement of Schönbrunn, dictated by Napoleon, brought further humiliation for the Habsburgs. Vienna was forced to cede her share of the Polish partition to the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, Her remaining Adriatic possessions to the Kingdom of Italy, as well as to Bohemia to Saxony, and Salzburg to Bavaria. A huge indemnity was exacted to add to their economic woes, and they were forced to restrict the size of their army. Metternich became the new foreign minister and though as hostile towards Napoleon. His policy was necessarily that of coexistence. He hoped to raise Vienna's profile by diplomatic means, rather than military, by allowing the marriage of the Archduchess Marie-Louise, the eldest daughter of Emperor Francis, to Napoleon. But the truth was that Austria had been reduced to a French satellite. Tensions meanwhile escalated between France and Russia. The breach came in the year 1810 when Napoleon annexed the northwest duchy of Oldenburg, whose integrity had been guaranteed in the Peace of Tilsit, and whose sovereign was Tsar Alexander's uncle. Alexander responded by closing Russian markets and ports to French products. Napoleon could not endure so blatant a challenge and began preparing for an offensive. During the spring and summer of 1811, The two powers drifted apart, neither committing itself to war. By the end of the year, however, it was clear that a major French offensive was imminent. Napoleon reinforced his armies in eastern and central Germany, occupied Swedish Pomerania, and transferred some troops from Spain. Alexander sought help from Austria and Prussia. When Napoleon successfully intimidated both states into supporting him, or at least not actively opposing him. However, the French Emperor failed to secure an alliance with the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the Sultan made peace with Russia on the 17th of May 1812, ending a war that had lasted since 1806. By the peace of Bucharest, Russia acquired most of Bessarabia, approximately the modern state of Moldova, between Romania and Ukraine, but far less than she had once seemed likely to achieve. Napoleon assembled an immense army of about 600,000 men in East Prussia, of whom only about half were French. Many of his most experienced troops were fighting in Spain, and he wouldn't have been able to put together such a large army without substantial conscriptions from his conquered territories about 190,000 from Germany, 90,000 Polish and 30,000 Italian. Another 50,000 reinforcements followed later. This so-called Grand Armée was accompanied by 200,000 animals and 25,000 vehicles when it crossed the River Niemen on the 22nd of July, 1812. This massive force far outnumbered the Russian armies which had to retreat ever deeper, fighting small-scale rearguard actions but avoiding a major battle. The size of Napoleon's army meant that it was unwieldy and unable to move fast enough to catch the retreating Russians. The logistical problems of moving so many people across such a great distance were immense. Other problems were a high level of desertion and also indiscriminate plundering made worse by the very extended lines of communication by the Russians' scorched-earth policy. Napoleon hoped that the Russians would launch a counterattack and give him a chance to strike a decisive blow in battle. In late July, his troops reached the city of Vitebsk, on the far eastern border of Lithuania. There, he waited to rally up the stragglers before continuing on to Smolensk, and then beyond. The Russians finally made a stand near the village of Borodino, not far west of Moscow, on the 7th of September. By then the Grand Armée was already much reduced in size. The Bavarian corps, for example, had lost half their strength through illness before it even made contact with the enemy. The Battle of Borodino of the 7th of September, 1812 was fought between Napoleon's 130,000 troops with more than 500 guns and 120,000 Russians with more than 600 guns. The Russians strongly fortified their positions and waited for the French to attack. The right wing had the benefit of ideal defensive terrain and so the French tried to press the Russian left for much of the battle. De was not confident of being able to outflank the Russians, and so instead executed a crude frontal attack, which inevitably led to very heavy casualties on both sides. From early in the morning to midday, the fighting went back and forth along the three-mile front. The French artillery began to gradually tipped the scales in their favour, but the successive French attacks were not strong enough to overwhelm Russian resistance. With uncharacteristic hesitancy, Napoleon, for reasons unknown, failed to commit the 18,000 men of the Imperial Guard who were his last reserve, and so forfeited a potential chance of achieving a decisive, rather than just a narrow victory. Both sides became exhausted during the afternoon and the battle subsided into a cannonade, which continued until nightfall. The Russian commander Kutuzov withdrew during the night, having suffered about 44,000 casualties, while the French lost about 30,000 men. Unlike their enemy, the Russians were able to continually reinforce their numbers and so by now were able to achieve Numerical superiority. A week later, Napoleon entered Moscow unopposed, only to find it abandoned, and the city was soon ablaze, with the French blaming the fire on Russian arsonists. But Tsar Alexander still refused to negotiate. Ignoring warnings about a Russian winter, Napoleon lingered in Moscow until the 19th of October, and only then began the long march. Back home. The retreating troops were constantly harassed by Russian peasants, Cossacks, and some Russian regular units, making foraging all but impossible, and the army was soon disintegrating through hunger. Its sufferings were increased by snow early in November and severe frosts in December. By the end of 1812, only some 40,000 men of the original 500,000 found their way back to Poland. Napoleon's Russian campaign had cost him dearly in terms of manpower and loss of guns and horses, which weakened French armies for subsequent campaigns. Also, significantly, the disaster in Russia on top of French reverses in the Peninsular War in Spain finally shattered the myth of Napoleon's invincibility. Tsar Alexander of Russia now saw himself as the liberator of Europe, and saw it as his mission to defeat Napoleon and to free the continents from French dominance. He reached out to Frederick William of Prussia, who was still hesitant, but bowed to Prussia as popular resentment of the Napoleonic forces in his country shifted to outright hatred The two sides, Russia and Prussia, signed the Treaty of Kalish, a military alliance against France, and in March Prussia formally entered the war. The weakened Austrians were more hesitant, for Metternich had no desire to see French hegemony replaced by a Russian version. It was only when it was clear that Duke Wellington of Britain had achieved total victory in Spain and after Napoleon's refusal to consider any negotiated deal, that the Austrians dropped their neutrality. By the Treaty of Teplitz of the 9th of September, Russia, Prussia and Austria pledged to provide armies of 150,000 each, and not to make peace until Napoleon was defeated. Significantly, this was the first time when all the great powers of Europe fought Napoleon together. Napoleon could still perhaps have obtained peace on favourable terms in the summer of 1813, may even have been able to remain ruler of France, but he resolutely refused to make the necessary concessions and instead sought military salvation. He hastily scraped together another army, but the quality of the new recruits was poor and he was critically short of cavalry and guns. The final decisive battle occurred at Leipzig and lasted three days on the 16th and 19th of October. what became known as the Battle of the Nations, because of the large number of nationalities involved, the French were defeated with a loss of 73,000 men compared to the Allies 54,000. The Allied victory was a turning point and destroyed Napoleon's influence in Germany. For the first time there was a united front against France and finally the hope of breaking Napoleon's grip on Europe. As Napoleon retreated back across the Rhine, his empire collapsed and his satellites deserted him. The extent to which Napoleonic power had always depended on military supremacy now became fully apparent. He had received little real support from the peoples he conquered, except perhaps from small numbers of the middle class in western Germany and northern Italy who supported the ideals of the French Revolution. But even among these supporters there was growing revulsion against the burdens his regime imposed. In early 1814 Napoleon achieved some small-scale victories against the Allies as they invaded France, but he was now critically short of men and munitions and also started facing considerable resistance within France. A renewed Allied advance captured Paris at the end of March. On the 16th of April, Napoleon formally abdicated and was sent to exile to the Mediterranean islands of Elba. In the months that followed, Napoleon kept a close watch on the negotiations between the victorious Allies and also on events in France where Louis XVIII had been restored to the throne. He made a final bid for power and landed back on the mainland on the 1st of March, 1815, where he quickly acquired some support. The Allied armies, however, were immediately sent against him and confronted the Napoleon's forces at the Battle of Waterloo on the 18th of June, 1815, in the southern Netherlands. The Duke of Wellington led an army of men from Britain, the Netherlands, Hanover, Brunswick and Nassau, and was aware that an Allied army of Prussians were nearby and on their way. Wellington's troops withstood repeated attacks by the French throughout the afternoon, aided by the progressively arriving Prussians who attacked the French flank and inflicted heavy casualties. In the evening Napoleon assaulted Wellington's line, his last reserves, the senior infantry battalions of the French Imperial Guard. With the Prussians breaking through on the French right flank, Wellington's men repulsed the Imperial Guard and the French army was routed. Although the actual battle may have been fairly close, the numerical superiority of the Allies overall was such that the outcome of the campaign was certain before it had ever begun. After Waterloo, even Napoleon had to concede that he was beaten and surrendered. Four days after battle he abdicated for a second time and lived out the rest of his life as a British prisoner on the South Atlantic island of St Helena. Even before Waterloo, European diplomats had already gathered at the Congress of Vienna to begin negotiations to try and create a durable peace. Right at the top of the agenda was the containment of future French expansionism. Standing guard on France's north eastern border was Prussia, which was given extensive new territories in the Rhineland. On the northern border was the new kingdom of the Netherlands, made up of Holland and Belgium, and ruled by the House of Orange. In the south was the strengthened kingdom of Sardinia, comprising Sardinia, Savoy, Nice, Genoa, and Piedmont. Britain's negotiators were primarily concerned with the political reorganisation of Europe, but they were also careful to defend their country's naval supremacy. They agreed to return most colonies, which the British had taken during the war, but strengthened their position in the West Indies with the retention of Tobago, San Lucia, and part of Guyana. And the acquisition of the Cape of Good Hope and Mauritius protected their communications with India. Britain also secured her naval position in the Mediterranean by obtaining a protectorate over the Ionian islands to go together with Malta and Gibraltar. One important decision affecting all Sineas was the outlawing of the slave trade, which would come to be seen as incompatible with the ideals of the Enlightenment to which the rulers of Europe now subscribed. The wars weakened Britain's naval rivals, the Dutch, Spanish and the French overseas. Moreover, the Industrial Revolution was just about to begin a formidable new dimension to British strength. France was the principal loser of the Vienna settlement, but after two decades of war, which France herself had provoked, her losses were less than might have been expected, and were largely limited to her territorial conquests. France was further punished for her support of Napoleon during his 100 days return from Elba and Waterloo by a reduction of her frontiers to those of 1790 instead of 1792, which the Allies had previously been prepared to allow, and France also had to pay a massive indemnity. But her former territorial integrity was confirmed and she remained a great power. Russia made territorial gains in the lands of Poland to add to her gains during the war in Finland and Bessarabia, which marked a further westward expansion. Prussia was compensated for losses of Polish territory to Russia, with gains in Westphalia, on the Rhine, Swedish Pomerania and Saxony, which was punished severely for loyalty to Napoleon. Her gains in Western Germany finally marked the end of Austria's role as defender of the Rhine against France, and were to help considerably in her later growth in Germany. Another consequence of the war in Germany was the disappearance of the numerous scattered city-states, fiefdoms and episcopal principalities, and their consideration into a much smaller number of principalities. While Prussia now faced more westwards, Austria's focus went more to the south with her loss of influence in Germany made up by gains in Italy. Metternich swapped Belgium and Habsburg territories and southwestern Germany for Venice, Salzburg and Trent, making the Habsburg monarchy a more solid, contiguous territorial block. Possession of Lombardy-Venetia and Habsburg princes in Tuscany and Modena meant that Austria would again dominate Italy. On the peripheries of the continent, Sweden definitively lost her long struggle with Russia for control of the Baltic. Spain had been stripped of most of her empire and reduced to bankruptcy, while Denmark and Holland had been neutralised as naval powers. The Congress of Vienna marked the start of a new era in international politics. With the violence of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars still fresh in people's minds, Europe's ruling elites were keen to find ways to resolve differences without resorting to warfare. The previous system, based on maintenance of a balance of power, made way for one where the great powers worked harder to agree disputes between themselves, summed up in the idea of the Concert of Europe. Leading members of European states became used to meeting on a frequent basis to thrash out their differences, and managed to take common actions on a number of cases, despite their opposing interests. And to a large extent, this was successful. During the 99 years that separated the Battle of Waterloo from the outbreak of the First World War, there were few major wars, and those which took place were shorter. One key reason for the desire for cooperation was fear of revolution and upheaval, which could easily lead to instability and conflict. The ruling elite therefore acted quickly to reverse the reforms which they had been compelled to introduce, retaining only those which strengthened their own position. France reverted to a monarchy which was more conservative than it had been under the old regime. The Austrian chief minister, Metternich, who dominated Viennese politics for the next three decades, worked hard to stifle liberal reform in the Habsburg territories, using censorship and a wide-ranging spy network to suppress unrest. One of the key stories of the next decade was conflict between the ruling elite who sought to preserve the existing order and a new middle class who were more politically engaged than before and strove for democratic accountability and to bring the ideals of liberalism or socialism into the ways of government. Also important was the rise of nationalism, which would bring about further instability. We'd end up redrawing the map of Europe again later in the century. My name is Karl Reilert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. I hope you can join me next time when I talk about the famous revolutions of 1848. In the meantime... You can visit the Facebook page of the podcast or the website www.historyeurope.net or Patreon, patreon.com slash historyeurope. Until next time, all the best and goodbye.